This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we are on the frequency 7260 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And online, we're available at www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and with me in studio tonight is Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. South Africa's Human Rights Commission says controversial comments by Malema don't constitute hate speech. South Sudan's political and military situations remain stable and experts dispel cultural dis- uh, beliefs on Cyclone Idai. In economics news, a United Nations special representative to South, Af- to South Sudan says suffering continues in South Sudan. And in sport, South Africa's national men's football team players will each pocket 4,000 US dollars for their win over Libya. But right now, uh, actually, <laughs> that's going to be good news for our South African players considering the economy that we're in right now, Tracy. But uh, let's head on over to the news desk. Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to give you your news at 5 p.m. Central African time. Thank you, Samora. Five cases of cholera have been confirmed in Baira and surrounding areas in Mozambique following the cyclone that ravaged the country, killing at least 468 people. 2,700 cases of acute watery diarrhea, which could be a symptom of cholera, have also been reported. Cyclone Adia smashed into Mozambique on 15 March, unleashing a hurricane force winds and heavy rains that flooded much of the centre of the country and then battered eastern Zimbabwe and Malawi. The Red Cross has previously warned of a ticking bomb of disease and called for the deployment of medicines and health professionals to avert a full-blown health disaster. A treatment centre for cholera has been set up in the Baira Hospital. The World Health Organization is dispatching 900,000 doses of oral, oral cholera vaccine to affected areas from a global stockpile. The shipments expected to be sent later this week. United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan, David Shearer, says the political and military situation remains stable in the country. This as President Salva Kiir and his principal opponent, Riek Mashar, prepared to form a government of national unity in the first week of May this year. Shira says the challenge now is to maintain the momentum of peace that is prevailing in the country. There are some who believe that a return to violence is inevitable. We don't concur. This agreement has broader buy-in from parties than the 2015 agreement. It is widely embraced by the population. We too have concerns about the peace process, but there is yet to be a perfect process. For our part, the UN has and will continue to focus attention and resources on making it work. And I want to stress, there is no plan B. There is only plan A, this agreement and this path forward. And for it to have a chance to work, it needs to be supported. 
Algeria's biggest union and an influential party, National Rally for Democracy and General Union of Algerian Workers, have joined their voices with the army calling for the removal of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika. The country took to the streets five weeks ago calling for the removal of the political elite. The army, Algeria's traditional kingmakers, earlier said Bouteflika should be declared unfit for office. A new drug that will reduce the risk of spreading drug-resistant tuberculosis as well as increase its cure rate is to be tested soon. It is the world's first clinical trial in the fight against DRTB. That is expected to slash treatment timeframes. It will make treatment far easier and minimizes devastating side effects like the loss of hearing. 15,000 cases of rifampicin-resistant tuberculosis a type of DRTB, are diagnosed in South Africa every year. This TB cannot be cured by any drug. Dr. Francesca Conradi says that they're hoping the success of this research will bring earlier detection of resistance. The design is called a non-inferiority design, which means we're comparing what people normally get to the new regimen and making sure that they're above the same. I'm expecting that the new regimen will actually be more successful because it's shorter and it's got less, less side effects. We have a data monitoring committee that watches us and if we see a big difference between the two, they will let us know. But what we have to do when we do a TB trial is that we start the treatment and then we have to follow the patients for up to 76 weeks to make sure they don't get TB again. The President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, has called on members of the European Parliament not to stand in the way of giving Britain more time to deal with the Brexit issue. Members of Parliament in the UK will try to end the Brexit chaos with a highly unusual series of votes on alternative courses of action. Tusk has rejected the argument of some European Parliament members that a British participation in European parliamentary elections would be harmful. The BBC's Adam Fleming reports. He was talking to members of the European Parliament, and specifically members of the European Parliament, who'd been concerned at the idea that British MEPs would be hanging around here in Strasbourg during a long Brexit extension and causing lots of problems. So he was speaking to them, saying that is not an acceptable position to take. If the UK is still in the EU, UK citizens still have a right to be represented by MEPs here in Strasbourg. Indirectly, though, his message was to the UK, saying, if you want to stay in the EU, I am standing up for you. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. This is Africa Digest. Well, today is Wednesday, the 27th of March. It is officially the 86th day of 2019, and there are 279 days left in the year. What's the special thing or the most uh, significant thing that has happened to you today? Well, I will tell you that in 1995, today, South African President Nelson Mandela dismissed his estranged wife, Winnie, from government. The decision to expel her was uh, unanimously hailed by parliamentary parties as well as uh, the ruling ANC. 
and it's aligned structures. So uh, if you think that anything that has happened uh, on this day, March 27th, in your life trumps that, then be sure to let us know. You can contact us on all of our official platforms. It is info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS. Uh, to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five, or you can send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, and last but not least at Channel Africa One on Twitter. The third largest political party in South Africa, the Economic Freedom Fighters, has welcomed the decision by the South African Human Rights Commission that Julius Malema's recent statements cannot be deemed as hate speech. The decision by the commission comes after a complaint was lodged by the F.W. de Klerk Foundation concerning a statement made by Malema regarding white people outside the Newcastle Magistrates Court. Lengiwe Mkalipi, the Economic Freedom Fighters Deputy Secretary General, told Channel Africa that the party accepts the decision that Malema has been exonerated of any charges of hate speech. Mkalipi says that the EFF will continue representing the views of the poor. The outcome of the Human Rights Commission did exonerate us because we have been telling South Africans that we are a radical party. As a radical party, we have to call a state by state. And we are very much happy to say that the Human Rights Commission said, uh, find us in favor of what the U.S. has been saying, that we don't hate anyone, but we call a state as a state, as you are alluding to the fact that Commander-in-Chief was in case and on Sunday. Commander-in-Chief didn't say anyone is a racist, but... He said particular about the domestic workers that the Indians, because our manifesto took place in Chatsworth, whereby the Indians reside around Chatsworth. He said the Indians and white people, they must treat domestic workers with, workers with dignity. They must mm. not pay them with food. They must not pay them with alcohol. But they must pay all domestic workers with dignity. So that's what we are fighting for. We are fighting for domestic workers. We are fighting for the poorest of the poor. We are fighting for petrol attendants, we are fighting for cleaners. So that is our position from 2014 as EFS. So just to say that we have been accused of many things, uh, I think that South African at the end of the day, especially the poorest of the poor, because we are presenting them, they know that if the only political party is the EFS, we go prepared to defend the poorest of the poor. Unlike other political parties, they don't care about the poorest of the poor, they only care about them. When it's time for elections, our policies are pro poor. So we will always defend the policies of the poor. And that was Tlengi Wemkalipi, the Deputy Secretary General of the Economic Freedom Fighters. The prosecution in the trial of Duduzani Zuma maintains that he must must take responsibility for the fatal crash that occurred on the M1 highway in Johannesburg, South Africa, in February of 2014. The state has been replying to Zuma's application for a discharge of one count of culpable homicide and another of reckless and negligent driving. Zuma was on trial at the Randberg Magistrates Court relating to the death of Pumzile Dube. A separate count of culpable homicide was withdrawn yesterday. Zuma's vehicle, a Porsche 911 Turbo, crashed into a minibus taxi on the M1 highway, resulting in Dube's death. Duduzane's lawyer, Mike Hellens, elaborates on why charges against his client should be dropped. The state has called all its witnesses and closed its case. And we submit that it is plain that the state has failed to prove all of the elements of the charge and further failed to disprove the defense raised by the accused in his plea explanation. That is the primary and the secondary challenge. In other words, just taking the state's case, what did they prove? What negligence on the part of Mr. Zuma was established by the proved facts? 
None. They proved the collision. They proved a rainy night. They proved a dark rainy night. They proved um, that something extraordinary happened. Two vehicles traveling in the same direction uh, with two lanes in between them. Suddenly the one vehicle hits the other vehicle at the back. I'll put it just as vague as that. And they prove no explanation for that whatsoever, never mind the finger of culpability, the finger of blameworthiness for the accident pointed at Mr. Zuma. On the secondary level, we say, look, state, we've looked at this. There's a joint minute of experts. There is a design fault in the Porsche. There is this fault of aquaplaning. We put up to you the challenge. The state have a duty primarily to prove its case at this level, uh, a case that a reasonable court might convict on, acting carefully, and to disprove the defense raised. They have failed at both hurdles. Now, Section 174, your worship is well aware, provides that if at the close of the case for the prosecution at any trial, the court is of the opinion that there is no evidence that the accused committed the offence referred to in the charge or any offence of which he may be convicted on the charge, it may return a verdict of not guilty. And obviously there is an alternative charge of negligent driving that really falls away because if, the, if negligence is made on the main count, it links then to the causation of death, it links therefore to culpable homicide. So we come back to was Mr. Zuma driving negligently? And we, we say in paragraph 10 that it's well established that no evidence does not mean no evidence at all, but rather no evidence on which a reasonable court acting carefully might uh, convict. And that was Mike Helens, one of the lawyers of Duduzani Zuma, the son of former South African President Jacob Zuma. As political parties continue with their campaigns ahead of the elections in May, South Africans are gearing up to make their choice. According to the Independent Electoral Commission, there are about 285 political parties registered to participate in the 2019 elections. About 21.5 million people are on that voters' roll with uh, complete addresses. And political analyst Tapelo Tsalapedi says that the participation of new political parties is a reflection of the democratic society that South Africa enjoys. However, he also believes that the new parties will not directly impact the performance of the ruling African National Congress at the polls. He adds that the performance, uh, he adds that the names on the Economic Freedom Fighters and the African National Congress, as well as the Democratic Alliance Party lists, are not too surprising either given uh, their different stance on gender equality, uh, race and other things to be mentioned. We need a lot more voices that can represent different constituencies in South African society. So to that extent, I think there, there is a deepening of democracy with, with a number of political parties, at least to the extent that it gives us a range of oppositional voices. If you look at the trajectory of, of political parties who have done well, are those that have usually left the, the ANC. If you look at COPE initially when it, when, it, when, it, when, when it left, it did quite well at the national election, but obviously not in the second election. They did not do quite well. But, I mean, the same sort of narrative you find with the EFF. So um, um, so given that trajectory for, for those who are leaving the ANC, 
there's a lot of say, you know there's a lot of electoral fortunes for them, but I don't think the same can be said for the for the new political party like good. And I'm not quite sure the same. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I'm quite clear that the same cannot be said also for the for the DLF and there's a sort of capitalist party that's also so emerged there. But I think there will be something for good when it comes to Western Cape in that province, and there may be something for it when it comes to PE. But I'm but I'm looking at the Western Cape. I'm looking at the city of Cape Town because I think also in terms of engagement, you see that's where Mayor Patricia Del also keeps on looking at Cape Town and how the voters must be able to punish the for the DA for its water cars and water prices. So that's been quite interesting, and I think, you know, there may be something for it. I'm not sure whether that will give her uh, a seat in Parliament, but there may be something at least at the provincial level for the party. For the, for the EFS, I don't know if it's going to be that great for them, but as far as the, the new political parties are concerned, I think they are going to play a marginal role. They're not going to play a role in Parliament or provincial legislature. You may see one or two um, the political parties getting one or two representatives certainly at the national level, but I don't think nothing uh, big. I think the ESF is understandable. Go with the trajectory of appointing young people, especially when you look at I think my lady Chawa from the university. Victoria is must fall activist, and then when you look at also the housing, so so that's not new. The ESF is a young party it's made up of former ANC youth leaders. Um, so they also want to keep that momentum of, of people that are in touch with the past of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Another part of, of the DA, I mean, it's quite interesting, the one story that I had followed, I'm forgetting his name, but I think he's a spokesperson for one of the MECs in the West Young guy, young black male, I think, who, who whose name was dropped off the list because he took a picture with, with Patricia Delo. So that, that's been quite interesting. But again, the DA has... Is historically known for also appointing young candidates, putting them up in both national and, and provincial legislature. So I think it's kept on with the trajectory. I think for the DA, they're battling, of course, to, to transform, particularly around issues of, of, of gender and, and race. But I do I do think there has been an increase in the number of young people on that. I think the, the number that was, that was put around in the media is around 20-something between for both national and provincial. For the ANC, look, I, I don't think the ANC... And the ANC settles rather with, with issues around how to govern with a view of the future. I think the ANC really battles with that. And, and that's why you'll find a lot of 50 and 60-year-olds, at, 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 at least in the party. Uh, the 20% that the ANC has been banting, saying that, well, we, we put 20% young people on the list, is quite little. It's quite little. Yes, a lot mm-hmm. of ANC members would say, well, we've got a 21-year-old, we've got a 22-year-old, we've We've got a fees must fall activists, we've got university students and all of that. But I don't think it's a, it's a political party that has grappled with issues around how do we how do we make sure that they're able to get people in the next 20, 30 years that will be able to govern both the ANC and, 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 and government if they were to still be in power. Uh, and I think to that extent, they've, they've made a huge mistake and a blunder because this was the one election the ANC could have, could have made sure that they positioned themselves for that sort of debate, but they haven't. Any surprises that you're expecting for this year's elections? Only one. I suspect a person like Andy Lemmingham of the DL of the DLF will get um, a a seat in Parliament. That was political analyst Tapelo Talapedi speaking to Ayanda Mkwanazi. The time is now 17.19 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi, right here on Channel Africa. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication 
of personal albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pulem Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times. Monday, 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time. And from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan says the political and military situation remains stable in the country as President Salva Kiir and his principal opponent, Riek Mashar, prepare to form a government of national unity in the first week of May this year. James Shimanyula reports. According to the United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan, David Sierra, the new peace agreement that President Kiir and Riek Mashar as well as other political and military parties signed in Sudan's capital Khartoum last year, is holding. The challenge now, Sierra says, is to maintain the momentum of the peace that is prevailing. Sierra says, for the first time in three years, thousands of people who fled the country and crossed into neighboring countries are gradually returning to South Sudan, while many others are expressing their willingness to return home. However, he noted that the timetable set out in the agreement was well behind where it should be. Many bodies set up under the agreement, Sierra says, are still dealing with the procedural rather than substantive issues. Sierra stresses that a peace that falters would generate frustration, anger, and a possible return to violence that could equal the violence that occurred in 2013 and 2016. There are some who believe that a return to violence is inevitable. We don't concur. This agreement has broader buy-in from parties than the 2015 agreement. It is widely embraced by the population. We too have concerns about the peace process, but there is yet to be a perfect process. For our part, the UN has and will continue to focus attention and resources on making it work. And I want to stress, there is no plan B. There is only plan A, this agreement and this path forward. And for it to have a chance to work, it needs to be supported. Sierra acknowledges that suffering continues in South Sudan and that five months of a more stable environment cannot overnight redress the issue of food insecurity and the absence of health or education services. We should remember that tens of thousands of South Sudanese citizens, young and old, are alive today because of the generosity of donor nations and the heroic work of humanitarian agencies. It is a reality that South Sudan's leaders often forget or take for granted that their country is supported by taxpayers around the world. The United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan says more than one billion United States dollars in support of last year enabled the humanitarian agencies to deliver assistance to five million 
of the country's 14 million people. Sierra says this year's target is 1.5 billion United States dollars to reach 5.7 million needy people, stressing the importance of peace in South Sudan, Sierra said. Peace saves lives. It also saves money. South Sudan is a country of abundance where nobody should be hungry. The humanitarian bill, I would argue, is ultimately unsustainable. Adding his voice to remarks made by the United Nations Special Envoy to South Sudan, the country's permanent representative to the UN, Akwei Bonamalwal, decried the slow pace at which the implementation of the peace agreement is moving. You all know that peace implementation is moving at a very slow pace due to inadequate funding. Nevertheless, while we hope some in the international community will assist in the implementation, the government of the Republic of South Sudan will carry on with the implementation process using whatever means and resources available to it. That was United Nations Permanent Representative to South Sudan, Akwe Bonamalwal. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shemanyula. Experts dispelling cultural beliefs have unpacked tropical cyclone Udai that had that left a trail of destruction in parts of Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, the destruction was so huge that most people now believe in a super believe of superstitions and spiritual powers that moved huge rocks. However, climate change experts have unpacked what causes tropical cyclones, where they originate and why Cyclone Adai was so devastating. More from our Harare-based correspondent, Simon Muchemwa. The tropical cyclone Idai phenomenon has created several superstition theories regarding how they form on the ocean, why they fall on the land, and if they could be avoided. Some people who witnessed the cyclone are suggesting spiritual powers were behind the deadly Idai. Certain victims even told President Emerson Mnangagwa that they had tumors suggesting they could have been a volcano. However, a climate change expert based in Harare bemoaned lack of knowledge and information among his Zimbabwean citizens. Dr. Leonard Unganai told Channel Africa tropical cyclones as they are referred to in the southern hemisphere are caused by favorable weather conditions in the ocean. A cyclone, in, in very simple terms, is actually a tropical storm or a, an organized weather system that is characterized by high winds as well as uh, high rainfall. And normally these systems, they start in the, in the ocean. And uh, they are called tropical cyclones in the southern hemisphere just because of the way the winds will be spinning uh, towards the center of the system. In the southern hemisphere, they spin in a clockwise direction. Mm -hmm. That's why they call them tropical cyclone, because it's kind of cyclonic circulation. In the northern hemisphere, they tend to call these things hurricanes. And then you find uh, the systems tend to be categorized in terms of their strength from a category one storm to category five. And in most cases, we'll be looking at the wind speed uh, of the system. So by the time it gets to category five, we're talking about wind speeds of uh, more than 280 kilometers per Cyclones, by their nature, rarely affect the inland, but a few of them, Cyclone Elin, Cyclone Jaffet, and Cyclone Dineo, have hit the land recently. Dr. Leonard said climate change is causing serious changes on the land such that 
when cyclones form on the ocean, they are now prone to be attracted to the land than before. The climate change experts said global warming is giving rise to water temperatures in the oceans and that creates high pressures and heavy winds. So we rarely get tropical cyclones that make their way inland. Most of them tend to hit Madagascar, Mauritius, La Reunion, and they even tend to graze the coast of uh, Mozambique, but it's very rare for them to penetrate uh, eastwards. There has to be a, a favorable atmospheric circulation for them to penetrate. So like uh, from year 2000 up to now, there are very few tropical cyclones that have formed in the southwest Indian Ocean that have made their way into Zimbabwe. Tropical cyclone Elin in 2000 was one of them, then we had tropical cyclone Jaffet uh, that you mentioned, and then Dineo recently. These were very few that penetrated uh, eastward, just because the conditions would be, would be favorable for them to push uh, westwards. Going forward, weather experts in Zimbabwe have been blamed for their failure to simplify disaster warnings. The meteorological department picked the early warnings of tropical cyclone die on time, but informed citizens via mobile phone messages, but citizens failed to understand them, Dr. Unganai said. I think there's still a lot that needs to be done for our experts to be able to present uh, some of this information in ways that make it easy for a layman to understand and also for a layman to be able to take action. Dr. Unganai bemoaned proper planning during the land resettlement which forced people to indulge in land degradation, deforestation and serious heavy siltation early 2000. Land reform is actually in some cases pushing people to, to the better areas where the white farmers were. But then I think it hasn't been accompanied by better awareness, better training to make sure they don't destroy the natural resource base, which is, I think, the unfortunate part. After the land reform, they are slowly turning into a kind of some level of degradation, trees being cut randomly, uh, people farming along riverbanks, causing siltation of rivers, dams, and, and, and so forth. So. In a way, we have seen some problems that started during the colonial era, but we are also making our own mistakes. Meanwhile, government has indicated that there are plans to introduce modern settlements in the affected areas to avoid future loss of lives. In countries like the USA, houses are built using timber, which when affected, the material is so light and rarely take human life, Minister of Local Government July Moyo said. National University of Science and Technology which uh, was in the Ngangu area, they finished replanning uh, uh, what they believe. They brought architects, they brought planners, working with the physical planners from uh, uh, the ministries and urban designers. They think they can give their input in, in what has to be done going forward. So we are not just thinking about the immediate which we, we need now, and the short term and medium term, but we must start thinking the long term about that area. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. 1731 Central African Time. Let's cross on over to the news desk where Tracy Boomgard is standing by to give you your headlines. Thank you, Samora. 
Five cases of cholera have been confirmed in Baira and surrounding areas in Mozambique following the cyclone that ravaged the country, killing at least 468 people. United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan, David Chira, says the political and military situation remains stable in the country. The President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, has called on members of the European Parliament not to stand in the way of giving Britain more time to deal with the Brexit issue. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Well, like I did say that today is Wednesday, the 27th of March, the 86th day of 2019. And something, uh, I did give you some history with regards to things that happened in the history of today. But something that is going to go down in history as having gone down today is the Sub-Saharan Africa Blast Injury Research Network, which is today hosting its first blast injury workshop in collaboration with the Blast Impact and uh, Survivability Research Unit at South Africa's University of Cape Town. The newly launched network aims to improve the health and wealth of nations affected by conflict through research and is the brainchild of the English England-based uh, University of Southampton. To speak to us more about this, we are joined on the line by Professor James Batchelor of the Faculty of Medicine at at the University of Southampton. Uh, Professor Bachelor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What informed the launch of the Sub-Saharan Africa Blast Injury Research Network and uh, what will be its core mission be? So it's a, it's a good question, actually. Um, we've, uh, as a university, have had extensive experience in working globally, including in sub-Saharan Africa and engaging with governments and clinicians and academics um, to look at, basically, um, the challenges that people may be having. And, and predominantly, we've looked mainly at the traditional um, issues that, that health services and, and, and medicine normally deals with. But in uh, collaboration with our own Department of Engineering in the University of Southampton, we began to look at the blast injury um, issues, which we have additional experience in working in Cambodia. And we started to think about how we might be able to use some of the experience we have as a, as a university in, <clears throat> in looking at what research is being conducted, how it's being funded, and how that's really translating into, into supporting, um, uh, you know, supporting people uh, on the ground. And our initial findings were um, pointing towards that there was a really interesting piece of work that we could do um, looking at uh, Africa as a whole, but starting with sub-Saharan Africa and looking at what research is happening, what does the, what does the current situation look like in terms of demining, and how can we make sure that the investments we're making from a research perspective are, are really translating in trying to support the efforts, not only in just demining, but also looking at the long-term sort of uh, victim assistance and rehabilitation by civilians who may have been affected uh, by blast injury, and particularly when we look at the total number of people who are being affected by blast injuries, of which about sort of 78% of them are civilians and, and 42% of them are children. All right, and what is today's meeting in Cape Town all about, actually? What do you hope to achieve? So what we've actually done today is have a really productive meeting with lots of different stakeholders who are involved in, in looking at blast injury. So um, 
we've brought together both clinicians, um, industry, um, engineers who, who look at the you know the actual explosive events themselves and mm-hmm. how you know how that you know could technically affect people. And for once, we brought them together to actually talk about this in a forum. Um, to look at where the gaps in the research may be and how we might be able to collaborate more officially to make sure we can have the biggest impact. So today has been a, a, a number of meetings where clinically we've discussed what the challenges are that we have from a clinical perspective. Um, the engineering side of uh, the, the team here today have, have talked extensively about the type of research they, they're doing and we're, we're looking for where those natural synergies are so that we can work closer together so that we can really in collaboration in a sort of multidisciplinary way, bring engineering and medicine together to try and solve some of these challenges. And the University of Cape Town is a is a great place to do that. Um, not only has it got good good medical research happening in, in, in the university here, but it has a unique facility in terms of its blast impact and survivability research unit. Um, and we've had a long-term collaboration with UCT, with the University of Southampton, as we're both parts of the World University Network. So although we're concentrating today on, on, on starting that, building that network and bringing the right people together, we see that this is a long-term piece of work where everyone here today agreed that this was the beginning of something that we needed to continue to do to try and address these problems of post-conflict, um, which are still happening here in, in Africa, but also globally around, uh, around the world in other locations too. And uh, do blast injuries caused by conflict, legacy landmines and, I mean, explosive remnants of war uh, pose a serious and ongoing threat to civilian populations in this day and age? Yeah, they do. And, and um, you know, even I today was surprised by um, a, a partner who came from Zimbabwe to the meeting who, who showed us some of the protective equipment that they're, they're supplying to demining charities and, and surprised by just the sheer volume of this equipment that they're, they're sending out on a daily basis to be used. So this continues to be a long-term problem in terms of clearing it, and it continues to be something that affects civilian and, and you know, the, the, the rural environments and even the urban environments that people live in. And it, it's not a problem that has gone away completely. It may have slightly fallen off, a, a, I guess, a radar in, in some respects. But if we look towards what's happening in other parts of the world, um, then, such as sort of Syria, for, for a good example, then at some point there's going to have to be an effort to try and clear clear up these remnants. And so it's an ongoing problem. So I think, yes, uh, this is a unique opportunity for for us here and with the position that uh, UCT has and, and how South Africa plays an important role within the African region for us to, to, to try and continue to, to push the pace on terms of trying to uh, intervene in this issue. And would you say that there's been enough funding which is being funneled towards uh, not only first research towards blast injuries uh, as a humanitarian challenge, but also the actual uh, demining of, of you know, all of these countries and these places? So that's one of the key things, actually, that we're, we're starting to actually do. The University of Southampton has a pretty unique data set of all of the um, funding that's given for, for research globally, and we collect information from around about a 1,000 um, major research funders. And traditionally, as I said earlier, we've, we've naturally looked at that to try and help understand what the portfolio of research is and how much funding's been invested into a particular area, and to make sure that investment and that funding is 
you know, is you know appropriately and um, I guess equally spread against against the, the kind of I guess clinical challenges that that, that, that we face. Um, so actually, it's we're in the midst of really trying to grapple with what that research has been, where it's been, what its focus has been on, whether it's clinical or whether it's demining, and then making sure that we share that information and those results and the priorities that a network like this is going to to help refine. So we can give that back to funders so that we can make sure there's continued funding, increased funding, and maybe more appropriate funding to where actually that needs to go. And uh, Professor, lastly, what would you say are the appropriate pra- practices you feel could help to address this problem? So I think the most important thing is to make sure that we actually do continue to um, really you know still support the important you know um, measures of getting remnants of war and mines out of the ground that's that's for sure but i think it's really important that we do actually look at the you know we can pull the mines out of the ground and say well that's that's that problem solved but actually there is this long-term health issue and impact um where you know people need long-term rehabilitation not just both physically but also kind of mentally as well and we need to make sure that the appropriate research and, and action is put into place and, and policies are adapted to, to recognize that that need for those victims who require assistance who may have been affected by blast injury all right well thank you very much for joining us on the line and uh, letting us know about the uh, the newly launched network, uh, the sub, sub, Sub-Saharan Africa Blast Injury Research Network. Uh, that was Professor James Batchelor of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Southampton in England. Time is 17.41 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with myself, Samora Mangesi. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Last week, Kurdish-led forces took the last piece of territory occupied by the Islamic State group. It brought to a formal end the self-proclaimed caliphate announced... uh, back in 2014, but aimed, but amid the celebrations, Kurdish authorities say they're struggling to cope with thousands of captured I, I, IS women and men and uh, are calling for an international court to be set up to try them. The BBC's Ali Makbul has been invi- given a rare access to one of the camps, uh, Roj, in northern Syria, where many of them are being held. Well, now that that final enclave has been recaptured from the Islamic State group in Baghouz, one of the many unanswered questions is what happens now, not just to the IS fighters who surrendered or who were captured, but the wives and children of those fighters as well. Of course, many women themselves came out to join 
the IS group of their own volition. And 450 of them are here in this camp in Al Raj in northeastern Syria with their families. And the ones here are from more than 40 different nationalities. For my children, normally, because they don't know what the house is, they only they know what, what is the tent. They include Ilham from the Netherlands, who admits to having joined IS, but as yet has no idea where she might face trial. They are asking the government to take us back, but I'm still here, I'm waiting. If you did go back to Holland, what do you think would happen? I go to prison. My children, I hope to my family. That's what's going to happen. And you could accept that? Yeah, because I know I make a mistake. Well, you'll understand there are people around the world and they will yeah. think, well, leave her there. If she wanted to go, yeah, then leave her there. Yeah, but it's no matter what people think about me. But it does matter what people think. Public opinion in home countries means that few Western nations are taking back their IS group citizens. So dealing with them has been left to the ill-equipped Kurdish administration. <laughs> Unfortunately, the international community has disappointed us, says the Kurdish head of foreign relations, Abdul Karim Omar. We can't hold and try these people alone. If the world doesn't help us, there'll be a problem again, and the Islamic State group will once again be a danger for all of us. After the final offensive to wipe the so-called Islamic State from the map, we saw trucks that carted away hundreds of IS families. An ignominious end for the militants, but we heard the sounds of children coming from the trucks. Children, thousands of whom are foreign, who are now in the detention camps with their IS group mothers. If we don't rehabilitate those children and don't return them to their home country, says Abdul Karim Omar, we're just ensuring they'll remain immersed in this dangerous ideology and will be the prospective terrorists of the future. Back at Al Raj camp, children are everywhere and there is no plan in place to repatriate them. The people in this region have suffered living under IS, have given huge sacrifices fighting IS, and are now burdened with holding IS members indefinitely. The warning is that in an unstable region, anything could happen to those detainees. The fear of the Kurds here is that now the territory has been taken back from the Islamic State group and the military battle's been won, the world will show less concern about resolving all the issues left behind. All right, at 17.46, let's cross on over to the money desk. Tracy Boomgard is standing by. Thank you, Samara. United Nations Special Representative to South Sudan, David Shearer, says suffering continues in South Sudan and that five months of a more stable environment cannot overnight redress the issue of food insecurity and the absence of health or education services. More than four million people fled their homes when fighting erupted in South Sudan, while the threat of hunger still hangs over the country. Shira says this year's target is 1.5 billion United States dollars to reach 5.7 million needy people. You should remember that tens of thousands of South Sudanese citizens, young and old, are alive today because of the generosity of donor nations and the heroic work of humanitarian agencies. 
It is a reality that South Sudan's leaders often forget or take for granted that their country is supported by taxpayers around the world. Peace saves lives. It also saves money. South Sudan is a country of abundance where nobody should be hungry. The humanitarian bill, I would argue, is ultimately unsustainable. The National Education, Health and Allied Workers Union, Nihawu, has threatened to launch what it termed a relentless war on the South African revenue services should members' demands not be met. The union met with SARS leadership on Tuesday, where a 7% increment offered by SARS was rejected. The union demanded an 11.4% increase, among other demands. The nationwide strike is set to begin on Thursday with all SARS employees affiliated to the union withdrawing their labour. Pakistan says it has fully opened its airports for all flights. They were closed for a month because of tensions with neighbouring India. The BBC's Anbarasan Isridajan reports. Commercial air services resumed across Pakistan's airports after the authorities fully opened the country's airspace. Foreign airlines will also be able to land but are still prohibited from overflying Pakistan on the way to other destinations. Currently, flights from neighboring India to Europe and the US are taking a detour. Pakistan had partially resumed flight operations from the cities of Islamabad, Karachi, Peshawar and Quetta earlier this month. Ford Motors is to close two of its assembly plants and an engine factory in Russia. The move is part of a restructuring operation in unprofitable regions. Ford says the closures will lead to significant job losses but gave no further details. An estimate from the Association of European Businesses Lobby Group shows new car sales in Russia is expected to rise 3.6% this year. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.43 Nigerian Naira, 10.49 Botswana Pula at 100.23 Kenyan shillings and at 12.02 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.86 Brazilian Hale, 64.21 Russian Ruble, 68.97 Indian Rupee, 6.71 Chinese Yuan and at 14.37 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,315 and platinum at $860 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $68.15 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, Nerich Money is here in the studio, ready to give us our latest sporting news. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon to all sport fans. Starting with football news. 
South Africa's national men's football team players will each pocket 4,000 US dollars for their win over Libya after qualifying for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations AFCON, set to be hosted in Egypt. Pesitao's brace and the heroics of Darren Kidd in goal ensured the crucial 2-1 victory went South Africa's way last Sunday in Tunisia. Meanwhile, the draw for the Africa's most prestigious continental international competition is set to take place on Friday. April the 12th in Cairo, Egypt. Sudan will be the last hurdle for Nigeria's under-23 football team in their quest to qualify for the under-23 Africa Cup of Nations tournament, taking place in Egypt from the 8th to the 22nd of November. The first leg qualification tie is slated for the 5th of June in Khartoum, South Sudan, and the reverse leg will come up on the 9th of June in Asaba, Delta State. Channel Africa's Tony Obani reports. Asante sana mwenzetu Nixon Katembo na kwenye line ya simu na Apologies about the wrong audio. South African Paralympic athlete Ndando Mahlangu is baffled by Paralympics Committee's decision to cancel some of the events at the Global Games. The committee has decided to cancel the 100 meters, 400 and 800 meter events for the 2020 Games in Tokyo, Japan. Mahlangu became an overnight sensation when he won a silver medal in the 200 meters T42 category final at the Rio Olympics in Brazil. Yeah, you know, um, some guy from Australia said that uh, the double M's guys uh, are kicking are kicking the single M's guys. Um, it has never happened in the history of Paralympics, but because the guy was from Australia, the decision was was made uh, without any athletes uh, from around the world, which I think is wrong. But you know, um, I'm from South Africa. I don't think I have a say at the Paralympics. But one day I will. One day I will become an athlete. I will have a say. But for now, I don't think I'm there yet. But you know, I can't complain. Uh, instead of complaining, I just do the 400 and the 800 meters at the able body events and I think they will see me there, the Paralympics guys, and will ask me why are you doing that and I'll, I'll explain myself to them. For me, it's not about, you know, me wanting to have 400 and 800 meters. Uh, for me, it's basically about giving other people that is like me that doesn't have the opportunity at Paralympics because they have to do the 200 and the long jump. So I'm trying to open opportunities for everyone because I know how it feels like, you know, to be fast, to be fit, but not to be able to run a fitness event, if I had to put it like that, you know. South African Sports Association for Physically Disabled, SASAPD. President Muki Khrobla says the Paralympic team that brought many medals in the previous games is aging. SA won a total of 17 medals, 7 gold, 6 silver and 4 bronze at the 2016 Rio Paralympics in Brazil. Most of the star athletes have either retired or at the twilight of their careers. Unfortunately, we have to take reality in consideration. A lot of our big stars have stopped um, because obviously of age and so on. And then we also have to take in consideration is the trend that um, sport is actually moving forward. So your standards is becoming very, very high. It's not so easy to break a world record these days because of the standards. 
And finally, in rugby news, Sivio Soyuzu Api will captain the Springbok Sevens team at the Hong Kong Sevens next weekend after being named the leader of the pack for the seventh tournament of the World Rugby Sevens Series. The 26-year-old winger takes over the captain's armband from Philip Sneiman, who is still busy with recovery protocols following a head knock in Vancouver and will return to the Far East with good memories, having made a Blitzbox debut at the Hong Kong National Stadiums in 2016. Since then, Soizuapi represented the team in a total of 24 World Rugby Sevens Series tournaments and scored 77 tries in 124 matches. In fact, the Matlia-born speed star is leading a try score in the team this season with 21 tries. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on from 1900 hours Central African time when we'll be back on your airwaves to give you more news from an African perspective. From myself, Samoa Mangesi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Catherine Maleka and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, And you can also tweet us at channelafrica1. And whilst you're there, don't be shy. Press on that follow button. Who knows? We might just follow you back. But closing off the hour, taking us to uh, 1800 hours Central African time is a song, Une Ame by Matteo Uchedid featuring Fatumata Diawara. We'll see you later.
Au-delà du sexe d'un amour sur ex Je voudrais du vrai, pas que la vérité non Mais toute cette tendresse comme une caresse Une âme 